Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Aaron Stern. Good morning. It is so good to be here. And uh, uh, Rob and I talk on the phone probably once a week, every other week at, at worst, and uh, catch up on things like family and kids and marriage and all those things, but also church. And so uh, in many ways in being here today, I very much feel like um, I am with you and along the ride uh, with you and then just get to be here in person today. And uh, so it is a joy to uh, be here in person, but really be in this journey alongside you and for you to know that you have not just me and my wife and our, my family, but our whole church staff and church uh, cheering you on and believing in and excited about what God is doing here in and through Denver United here in Denver. And so uh, Rob and Mari, Jossie and I love you and we love uh, this house and uh, so, so grateful to be here. Uh, I'm excited to be kind of landing the plane, if you will, uh, in the Legacy Series. I know you have your Legacy offering happening here today, and such a beautiful and important day uh, in the life of a church or in the year of a church uh, in terms of giving and generosity and all those types of things. And so um, have the privilege of wrapping all of that up here today. I don't know if you've ever been to a graveyard. Maybe you're visiting somebody who's buried there. But uh, in, in any of the times that I've gone, I've never seen a tombstone that says something like, so-and-so, five-time employee of the month award winner. Or, you know, so-and-so, summa cum laude, and their GPA is on their tombstone. Or so-and-so, and maxed out is 401k. You know, like things that like you, we spend actually a significant amount of our lives investing in, but aren't necessarily the things that we want to be known for or the things that we care most about at the ends of our lives. David Brooks, a columnist for the New York Times, uh, also the author of several books, including The Road to Character, where he, where he describes the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues, and how we so often throughout our lives spend so much time investing in our resume virtues, which is not in and of itself wrong, but sometimes is at the neglect of eulogy virtues. And we have a culture that reinforces this emphasis on resume virtues, whether it be through education, whether it be through social media, or might even be uh, just encouraged in the type of conversations that we have that always seem to start with, what do you do? And we are, we are pushed along this road to invest significant amounts of our time in that area. But the point is here today, and what I believe that God is calling us to, is not to neglect those things, but in, the, in, in, in pursuing those things to make sure that we are not neglecting the things that at the end of the day will matter most. And as followers of Jesus, I believe that the things that we would want to be said about us during our lifetime and at the end of our lifetime, one of those things is that we would be known as people who are givers. That as a reflection of a God who gave His Son and gave everything because of His love for His world, and a Son in, in Jesus who gave all of His life away to us, that we as a reflection of Him would also then be seen as, known as, and remembered as givers. And so in order to do that, I think that we've got to be intentional about cultivating that type of legacy in our lives. And so I want us to jump into a passage of Scripture in First Chronicles, 
uh, today where, uh, where we can learn a couple of things uh, as we study and look at the life of David. Now, the f- books of First and Second Chronicles um, are books that in many ways should come at the very end of the Old Testament because they are a summary of the history of the Israelite people. And it goes from their originations all the way through the different ways in which they follow God, are unfaithful to God, and ultimately to their dispersion and exile and all the different things that happen at the end of the Old Testament. We're going to pick up the story in First Chronicles chapter 22, which is in many ways the highlight of their history, where David is king, where he has established the capital of Jerusalem, and has defeated the enemies around them. In many ways, it is the, it is the highlight and the high point of their influence. It's the high point of them following God. It's the high point of the king that they have uh, leading them in that day. And David has spent his life establishing uh, the, the kingdom, establishing Jerusalem, and defeating the enemies all around them. And we pick up in verse 7 of 22. And David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. See, up until this point, the house of God was portable. It was called a tabernacle. And now that they have a permanent location, now he wants to put a permanent building in Jerusalem for for the place where God will reside. But this word of the Lord came to me, came to David. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, God isn't saying to David, you did something you shouldn't have done. Actually, God was with David as he established and won these wars and battles against the nations around them. And so what God is in some ways saying to David is, no, you have fulfilled your purpose. And your purpose, though, is not to build this temple. That's actually the purpose or one of the purposes that I am giving to your son Solomon. And so David says, all right, thanks. I've done everything I'm supposed to do in my lifetime. I fulfilled my calling. So good thing that I am a member at the Mount of Olives Country Club. And so I'm going to golf my way in through retirement and I'm going to ride off into the sunset. Great. Thanks, God. Solomon, good luck. That's not what he did. Instead, a few verses later, verse 14, I have taken great pains, David says, to provide for the temple of the Lord. A hundred thousand talents of gold, which a talent is a measurement of weight. Uh, This would have been about 3,500 tons of gold. A million talents of silver. Quantities of bronze and iron too great to be weighed and wood and stone. And you may add to them. You have many workers, stonecutters, masons and carpenters, as well as those skilled in every kind of work in gold and silver, bronze and iron, craftsmen beyond number. Now begin the work and the Lord be with you. Then David ordered all the leaders of Israel to help his son Solomon. So we can see a few things here from the life of David and his interaction with Solomon and what he does at the end of his life. David is told by God, you cannot and you will not be the one to build the temple. Your son will instead. And instead of just saying, okay, well, um, hope you do well, 
He actually thinks in a way that builds a legacy of giving in his heart and in his line to come. And that is that he thinks generationally. He, 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 is, he does what he can to prepare for beyond himself. He prepares for Solomon. He can't build the temple and he will not see the completion of the temple, but he utilizes and leverages his life in order for Solomon to be able to start not here, but to start here. And so he is somehow not just thinking, well, I've done what I'm supposed to do. He's starting to now think about how can I make sure that someone else is able to do what they are called to do. I love what it says in Ephesians as the Apostle Paul writes to this young church in Ephesus. And he says to them, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within me or us, he says. Now, we just love that. I think that's an amazing scripture. It's an amazing scripture, and I've heard lots of people, we, we come around it, we want to embrace it, and we want to say, that's what I want. I want, to God, I want to believe God, and I know that God can do more than I could ever imagine. And so, God, I want to see you do more. But the, the verse does not end there. Instead, there's a qualifier to it, and it says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. In other words, yes, God wants to do immeasurably more, but not for you and I's fame, but for the fame of God. That our lives would be leveraged not for our own legacy, but for our legacy to be one of lifting up and communicating about the greatness of the God we serve. So in other words, if we're going to think generationally, it's not just thinking about how am I going to be known, but instead, what can I do in order to make sure that Jesus is known in my generation and in the generation to come? Because he then says, in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. We live in a culture where uh, we are impatient. We, we, the average wait time that we're willing to wait for a website to load is less than eight seconds. I mean, how impatient are we? What's wrong with this thing? I don't have time for this. But we live in an instantaneous microwave. We can order something, and depending on where, it can, where it's coming from, it might even actually be able to be there at our doorstep that day, at worst, at next day. I mean, we are used to things happening quickly. And I'm grateful for the advancements in so many different ways in our culture that that is possible. But it, I wonder if it hasn't shaped something in us that, uh, that causes us only to think in days and months and maybe just a few years and not in terms of centuries and millennia and the ways in which maybe our lives can impact something beyond ourselves and into something we will never see. A few summers ago, my wife and our four boys went on a road trip and we uh, were visiting some national parks. Uh, we are huge national parks fan. If you've not been to national parks, you should go. We have a little phrase in our family. It's a national park for a reason. So if we're anywhere near a national park, we stop. And, and so we were, uh, we were in southern uh, Utah, and, and we found out about a place called Antelope Canyon. Not a national park, but should be, and it is really amazing. And, and, and it is a slot canyon. And, uh, and a slot canyon is a bit different than like the Grand Canyon or the Black Canyon in southwest Colorado. A slot canyon, you know, oftentimes those canyons, you'll stand at the top and look down. Maybe you can hike down into them. But this one, uh, you actually just walk through the bottom of it. And uh, you can see it here on the screen. And, and we, we were taking a tour going through it and the way the light shines down. And they're talking about how it was formed. And this was a, a originally a creek bed. 
And, and, uh, and when it would rain, the river uh, would, of course, run down the creek bed, but the creek bed was sand. It's like beach sand. And, and, and it would run down the, the, the creek bed, and the sand would, there was a portion of the creek bed that was a rock formation. And the water would pick up the sand upstream and carry it over this rock formation. And over time, it started to create a groove. And over time, it started to wear that groove down. And I don't need to go into the details of how a canyon is formed and, 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 and creates greater depth. But in this particular case, I found myself thinking about this canyon. And I thought, this is an amazing picture of the church. Because sometimes I wonder if we don't think of ourselves like a little grain of sand and think, my life is inconsequential. It doesn't mean a whole lot in terms of what it might mean for the future. But, and, and, in, and in, in many cases, or in this particular case, one grain of sand is not going to form what we find now in Antelope Canyon. But it is the collective grains, grains of sand not just once running over this rock formation to begin erosion, but it is grains of sand over the course of time. And not just a few years, but over generations that eventually creates this beautiful, like absolutely stunning canyon for generations to enjoy. And I wonder if the same thing isn't true for us. That by ourselves we can do a little, but collectively... And collectively over time, something happens to build and create and sustain something that we may never experience or see, but someone else will be able to see and think, wow. And so what if some, somehow we can be a part of that one grain of sand with a bunch of other grains of sand starting to make our mark that will collectively over time build something that will be enjoyed and will point to the greatness of our God? It mentioned just a little bit ago was the project happening in India with the New Horizons house. And the finances that are given through this house will help uh, women that have been rescued from uh, sex trafficking. And who knows what will specifically happen with one of those women and what it might mean for her lifetime and what it might mean for the, her immediate family. But who also knows what it might mean for her family generationally that maybe you won't even know where it goes today or where and what it means for a hundred years from now. What if, just like David, we were to think generationally? In 2016, the U.S. men's relay Olympic team was poised to win gold. And it's always great when a, when a U.S. team is ready and poised to win gold, or any team is poised and ready to win gold. But in this particular year, it was a redemption year because they had had some issues uh, in the prior years in 2012 and 2008, and they had walked away without a medal. And this was going to be the year. Usain Bolt, of course, was on the scene, fastest man on the planet, but uh, the collective of the team he was on was not as fast as the collective speed of the U.S. team. And so here they were, ready to win gold, uh, had, had done exceptionally well at the World Championships. And at the end of the 2016 Olympic Games... The, the men's relay team walked away without a medal. Not gold and not silver and not bronze. And it was not because they were not the fastest team collectively. It was because they had issues passing the baton. See, it doesn't really matter how fast you run if you don't pass the baton well. Yes. 
And some of us are running really, really fast, and then we drop the baton when we pass it. It also can be very encouraging on the other side because the team that wasn't as fast, maybe you think, I haven't run my race all that well, can make up for it by passing the baton really well. So what if we were to think generationally? The other thing that David does here in this passage is that he thinks generously. He didn't think, well, I'm at the end of my life and, you know, I've got a few things over here and a pile of gold and a pile of wood and, you know, here you go, Solomon, see what you can find. It's like going through grandma's attic, you know. No, instead it says that he made a, it took great pains, made extensive plans, it says in another verse, to preparations before his death. And he, provided, he didn't say, well, I've drawn up some blueprints because I was hoping I was going to be the one that built this. But God says no, so here's some blueprints. No, he says he made great, took great pains, gold, silver, bronze, iron, more than they, some of that more than they could count. Then craftsmen, stonemasons and stonecutters and carpenters and all of these people that would be a part of building the temple. And then it says, and he also provided leadership for building the temple. That's a lot of work to coordinate at the end of your life. And here is David, not just here, here's a little bit, saying, I'm going to give you as much as I can. Now, you might think when, we, when I mention generosity, well, I don't have a whole lot, so I can't be all that generous. I have come to realize throughout my life that generosity is less about what you have and more about a posture of the heart. It's a more about a posture of the heart. I've also realized and want to make sure that it's clear that it's not just about finances, but it's about all and every part of our lives. And God is encouraging us to have a posture of heart that is a generous posture of heart. And this, well, I, I grew up in a home where my dad owned his own business and and most of the time it was good, but every now and then there would be some difficulties in the business or difficulties in the market. And as a result, um, things were tight. And I remember when it was financially tight in our house because the, the fridge was a bit bare. And, and there was a, a, a stress in the house that was due to the financial pressure that my parents were feeling. And so because of that, I, uh, I, started to, I started to think, I don't ever want to be in that type of a position where if we don't have something, or if I don't have something, I don't have some reserves. And so as a result, I came, became what I would term as stingy. Uh, I, was, I was like, well, I've got a little extra. I need to hold it for myself for the day when I don't have extra. And so, so it was only give what you have to, or only, and, but hold on to as much as you can. I was a penny pincher, and there's an element of stewardship that's valuable, but there's also a way that that can turn itself into, especially when it's a posture of your heart, into stinginess. And that was the way I was until I read this. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24, it says, The world of the generous gets larger and larger. The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. The one who blesses others is abundantly blessed. Those who help others are helped. This passage of Scripture didn't make sense to me because I thought, the more you give, the less you have. What this Scripture is saying, the more you give, the more you have. That doesn't make any sense. That seems backwards. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not the best mathematician, but 2 minus 1 equals 1. And God is saying, no, 2 minus 1 equals 3. Doesn't make any sense. 
I don't understand how that works. But then I read a passage of Scripture like the story of Jesus on the hillside where he's teaching 15,000 people. The Scripture says there's about 5,000 men, which women and children would have been about 15,000 or so. And he's been teaching them all day, and his disciples come to them and say, comes to Jesus, and he says, hey, Jesus, uh, you've been talking for a little while, and I think it's time to wrap it up, if you would, And uh, because the people are getting hungry, and if we keep them here long enough, they're going to start getting hangry, and that's not a good sign. And, and so that's not good. So Jesus is like, well, I'm actually not done talking, and so um, I, you guys are going to need to feed them. And they're like, um, hey, Jesus, we don't have any food, uh, and you know that we don't have any money, and this would take a half year's wages to feed everybody here. We don't have that. So what do you want us to do? If you're not going to stop talking, but you want us to feed us, feed them, what are we going to do? He said, go and see what you can find. So they do some searching, and they come back to Jesus, five loaves, two fish. Now, I don't know what was going through their heads exactly, but I, I like to imagine what was potentially they were thinking. And I think maybe they might have been thinking, this feels like a lose-lose. Because, because now the one boy whose mom thought, you might need this, and prepared a lunch for him, now that boy's not even going to eat. And if Jesus is thinking we're going to break this up into 15,000 little tiny pieces, that's negligible for anybody here. It's not going to calm any hunger pains. And so lose, lose. And they're thinking five loaves, two fish, 15,000 people. The math doesn't add up. This is not going to work. And Jesus says, give it to me. And they put the five loaves and the two fish into his hands. And he breaks it. He blesses it. And he ends up feeding all 15,000 people till they are full and there are 12 basketfuls left over. Now, I wonder if that little boy felt like it feels like risk to be generous right now. Here you go. I was excited about eating, but now I might be starving. So here you go. See, I believe that God will stun us with his abundance when we trust him with our generosity. When we say, I don't... See, the thing is, is when things are left in our hands, we think two minus one equals one. We think five loaves, two fish, 15,000 people. Math doesn't work. But something profound happens when we put things into God's hands. And all of a sudden, the math changes. And I just want to suggest that somehow, when we give more, we experience more. It doesn't mean that if you give money, you're going to get more money. It's not a give and a get. It, it may, might be relate in some form or another. I don't think that that's what Scripture teaches. I don't think that's what, what Jesus is teaching here. I believe that what is being said is when we have a generous posture, something about our lives is enlarged. Our hearts, our perspectives, our compassion, the way that we see ourselves and the world around us, there is something that happens. When Jossie, my wife, and I uh, had announced that we were going to be moving from Colorado Springs to Fort Collins to plant Mill City Church, this was just a little over eight years ago, we knew that we were following God. It felt like a very scary uh, process and knew that we were moving to a place uh, that that we didn't know anybody, we didn't have um, all the resources or the team, but we knew that God had led us. 
and had a sense from him that he was going to provide for us. And not long after uh, us announcing that we were going to be moving to Fort Collins, we received a, 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 an envelope in the mail, and it was a check for 2500 bucks. And it was from a guy who was a pastor that I knew of, and he knew of me, but we had not talked. I had not called him. Um, and he sent a little note with it saying, just wanted to bless you and your future church, excited about what God is going to do. And I just recently found the, out the backstory on that particular check and what was going on with his church that particular week. Uh, just earlier that week, they were a couple of years old, and they were a portable church, and their trailer was stolen. The trailer had their sound equipment, had their kids' uh, stuff, everything that they would need to set up church in that particular location at that particular time, and it was gone, which meant that when they came for Sunday morning, and were gonna, they had nothing to unload, they had no sp- nothing, but they cobbled together just a couple of things and basically said, we're going to show up and we're just going to have church. They had no money in their bank account. And even though insurance would cover some of it to cover their deductibles and other things that maybe it wouldn't have covered, they needed every penny that they could scrounge together. And on that particular morning, when they had nothing, when they needed a bunch of of money to be able to replace and move forward, he had a sense from God that said, whatever you receive in the offering today, I want you to give it away to Aaron and Jossie Stern, planting Mill City Church in Fort Collins. We get that check in the mail. It speaks something really profound to our hearts And here is a guy in his time of deepest need when everything that he says, that 2,500 bucks would have been a lot of money in that particular day for him. And God's saying, put it in my hands and let me stun you with my abundance if you will trust me with your generosity. And not too long ago, I found out that this guy just was given a $40 million piece of property. And I wonder if somehow God, in his beauty and power and generosity and providence, said, oh yeah, thank you so much for trusting me. Now I get to trust you, and I'm going to stun you with my abundance. What an amazing, amazing story and truth that God says, will you put what you've got in my hands? So David thinks generationally. David thinks generously. But he also thinks one other way that maybe isn't as easy to and obvious when we read this story. See, David is not just uh, passing off the kingdom to some guy who's coming after him, some random guy, some dude that's going to get elected or something like that. But instead, he's passing it off to his son. And when you have the heart and eyes of a father towards your son, there's more to it than just provision. See, David also thought formationally. He thought in terms of how his son might handle what he has. Solomon later became the wisest man the world had ever known. And as a result, kings and dignitaries from other nations actually came to Solomon to gain wisdom and hear about his wisdom. And it says that he gave it away freely. And I wonder if that wasn't because his father gave to him freely all that he had and everything that he could because he was forming something in his heart. See, I think sometimes we ask questions that are good questions, but maybe not the best first question. We ask the question, can I afford this? Not a bad question. How will this affect my retirement? Not a bad question. 
We might ask in terms of giving financially to the church. Should I give to the church? What does the Bible say about tithing? Is this, a, is, this a, is this an Old Testament thing? Or is this a New Testament thing? What's the percentage? And, and you're like, not a bad thing to be able to explore the Scriptures and find out what God has to say about those things. Absolutely. But it's not the best first question. The best first question for us to be asking is, how am I being formed? Because money has a formational quality to it. Money shapes something in our hearts. When I was growing up, as I mentioned, there were times that, that things were tough and things were tight and that created a stinginess in me. But at the same time, I also saw my parents handling money and giving it away specifically to the church. When I was probably eight years old, I remember going into the fridge. It was full at this time and I pulled out all the fruit out of the fridge and I had made a, I put out a table, put a, 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 made a sign that said fruit stand, made a little price list for the fruit, and I put the fruit on the table, and I set up my little fruit stand business in the living room, and I sold the fruit back to my parents. They bought it twice. <laughs> and I had a great day of selling, and I sold all the fruit, and I took my proceeds from my little fruit stand business, laid it out on my little table, and I counted it up. And my, the first thing that I did was separate out a percentage of that to say, I'm going to give this to God. I'm giving this to God in church on Sunday. Why? Because that's exactly what I had seen my parents do, no matter if they had a lot or a little. It was a non-negotiable, just part of the rhythm of their life and a posture of their heart. Why? Because we catch things. We're formed by things. We can teach our kids to share. But you know how they learn to share best? Is whether or not we share freely as parents. I want my kids to not just hear me say, don't hold tightly onto money, and for me to hold tightly onto money. Uh, but in fact, for them to see that mom and dad are quick to respond to a need. If we find out about a need, that we're the ones that are going to say, we can meet that need. What can we do? And oh, let's not just meet it, let's exceed it. That we would be, we want to be parents that would commute. I want my boys to learn that money is a beautiful, beautiful thing that can be utilized to serve other people, but it also can be something that you can serve. That it can be something that, that will be a benefit to others, and it also can be the worst thing that ever happened to you, depending on how and the place it takes in your life. I want my boys to know that they are connected to an unending source. I love the verse found in the story of the prodigal son where the dad is talking to his oldest son and he says, son, you've always been with me and everything I have is yours. That my boys would know that everything they've received is a gift from God, not just financially, but relationships and time and talents and that everything they have is given to them not to be held on too tightly, but to be released and to be a blessing to the people around them. That they would connect to an unending source, recognizing that if they give something away, God's economy says the pie doesn't stay the same size and now you have one less piece of pie, but God instead says you give that away, the pie somehow grows. That God says, I, I care about your relationship with money because money and finances and the things that we can hold on to are vying for our allegiance. They're vying for our heart. See, God, at the end of the day, doesn't really care about our money, our finances, our 401ks, all that stuff. Not that it doesn't matter. It's just that that's not the most important thing. 
ultimately the reason he talks about those things is because he cares about our heart. And you might say, oh, okay, well, if that's the point, great, I'll give God my heart and I'll keep my money. Except it doesn't work that way. Because Jesus also says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. My wife and I and our four boys sponsor a little child named Abenzer in Ethiopia. And so we've been sponsoring him, writing letters to him for years. And so anytime we hear about Ethiopia in the news, whether it's governmental disruption or some sort of weather pattern or significant weather issue going on, whatever it might be, our ears perk up. We're curious about what's happening there. Why? Because our heart's there. Why? Because our treasure's gone there. So you could even flip this whole idea around and say, I really want my heart to be there. You know, you can lead your heart somewhere by putting your treasure there. And so God's concerned about and wants your heart. And so there's a, there's a way that we can think generationally, generously, but God also wants us to think formationally. For those after us, and in terms of our own hearts and how we handle that which God has given to us. So I just want to take a moment here as we close. and I want to take a moment for us to pray. So if you would, if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes. And at the end of a message like this, my hope is not that we would say, oh, that was interesting. I learned a few things. My, my hope is that we would walk away thinking, what am I going to do with what I just learned? And maybe more specifically to ask, Holy Spirit, what would you have me do with what I just heard? And so would you just take a moment? Would you just take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit, what is it that you're asking me to do? What is it that you, what step is it that you're wanting me to take? Would you just open your heart, take a moment and listen? Maybe for you, you find yourself holding tightly to something. Maybe for you, you have heard God wanting and expressing a desire for you to let go of something or give something away, but you think, if I don't have that, I, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know how this is going to pan out. But God's maybe asking you to trust Him put it, take it out of your hands and put it into his. Maybe for you here today, you find yourself in a place where you're, you think about your own life and what's happening right in front of you, but have not thought about what might be coming next and how you might be able to invest your life generationally. At the end of the day, all of these questions are questions of surrender. Am I willing to surrender? Am I willing to surrender control? to God? Am I willing to surrender the things that I have to God? And I don't know where you find yourself on your journey of faith here this morning, but God is always calling us into a greater level of surrender. And maybe for some of you, you're here in church for the first time, or you would identify yourself as being somebody who's far from God. And maybe today God is calling you to a place where you would say, I need to surrender my life to God, cross the line of faith, and if that's you today, would you just under your breath to God, 
with a sincerity of heart, say, God, I surrender to you. I surrender my life. That's not the only thing that you'll ever need to say to God, but it is an amazing first thing to say to God. God, I give you my life. I surrender my life to you. And the beautiful thing is in God's powerful and amazing generosity, he gives his life and places his life in us. And so Holy Spirit of God, we come before you today and we surrender our lives to you. God, would you help us to hold loosely onto the things that we have so that we might hold tightly onto you as the ultimate source for our lives. God, we want to be people who trust you and surrender to you in every way. And may we be like Jesus, who came to the world to give his life away, not just to change a generation in the first century, but in fact to change all of history and every generation to come, who gave his life freely and generously, completely away, so that we might be transformed by the power of the Spirit of God. May that be true of our lives. May that be true of this house. This we pray in the powerful, death-defeating name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. 